Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if Verstappen deserved to lose third place in the United States Grand Prix and how F1's track limits crisis could be tackled. So while Lewis Hamilton beat Sebastian Vettel to the United States Grand Prix victory, the real talking point was the post-race penalty to Max Verstappen, which cost him his third place and handed it back to Kimi Raikkonen. So I'm sure we're going to have plenty of chat about track limits, the interpretation of that rule, and how if one can do things a little bit better in the future. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to have arguments about track limits and all the other topics of the day, first is Karun Chandok, a sometime racing driver who you may have heard of. Now, you've been out running as good racing drivers do training this morning and you, you almost caused an avoidable collision i believe yeah i uh had a quick turnaround at one point near the creek and nearly uh bumped into nico hulkenberg so that would have been a good story if i pushed him into the creek but uh no managed to avoid a collision so no no going to the stewards for us he didn't have Mikasalo following you and uh, asking you to explain yourself. Well, I imagine he's now uh, trying to hide from Jos Verstappen as we speak, actually, more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> probably wise, probably wise, that one. Also joining me is Lawrence Barreto. Lawrence, you are a well-known burger aficionado. I think your Twitter profile still calls you that, does it not? Uh, burger or, connoisseur. Burger connoisseur. Is there a difference between an aficionado and a connoisseur? No, probably not, but connoisseur sounds better. And you are a, you are a globe-trotting burger consumer and we have a new best burger in the world yeah it's great news came to austin heard that there's good burgers uh, in this place and i found uh, a new entry for the first time in two and a half years burger number 93 on the list uh vince young steakhouse their wagyu burger i'd just Brilliant. like to point out the irony of this conversation <laughs> with who's asking the questions and who's giving the answers so maybe have a look at the uh, lauren hardy picture on my twitter page that i've posted just to add to the picture lawrence is a relatively slender individual and it's fair to say i may be carrying one or two kilos more than my ideal weight bit of success ballast exactly exactly very successful eating anyway but let's get back on to the the matter at hand max verstappen Kimi Raikkonen, last lap, turns 16, 17, 18. It's that nice triple apex right-hander. What do we think? Right call, wrong call? I think it's quite a complex issue on, on because it's on multiple layers. Uh, if, you have, if you look at it uh, on its own, then 
Absolutely. You know, he left the track, four wheels over the white line, passed Kimi, got ahead of him. It's it's a slam dunk. And, and there's a lot of people in the paddock who I was surprised about who thought, well, it's obvious he's going to get a penalty. Um, I, I don't think it's that clear in, in because if you look, th- you have to look at the weekend on the whole. And there were several drivers who were beyond track limits. Uh, two moves stand out to me. One was obviously Bottas at turn one and uh, Sainz as well, actually, in that fiddly little bit um, before turn 12. Um, when he was with the Force India, was four ways over the white line. Quite obviously, you know, it's... Uh, um, so, where I think the system's let itself down is that they've selectively penalized one driver and not the others. And I think that's wrong. I think all that nonsense of drivers going off track at turn 19 and qualifying, as well as um, the left hand at the top of the hill, I think it's turn 9, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to say that they're allowed to do that with no penalty, yet we're going to penalise Max in the race. Either you have to turn a blind eye across the board. I don't have a problem with that because I agree it's hard to police everybody. But then you have to turn, also turn a blind eye to Max. To Out of all the stuff that's happened on the weekend, to choose to penalise Max, I think that is completely wrong. I agree. I think it's this consistency that um, everyone seems to be complaining about. And if, as Corinne mentioned... You- they penalised all everyone who exceeded track limits. People would still moan, but you wouldn't really have an argument there because it would at least you're kind of consistent across the board. It obviously didn't help that this pass happened at the last lap. Everyone was excited. It was so mega that people kind of are going to talk about it a little bit more than that. But um, I, I would agree. I think it's they just need a little bit more consistency. I think it's just worth going back to the, the kind of first principles and just revisiting the regulation for a little bit of context. Article 27.3 of the Sporting Regulations states as follows. Drivers must make every reasonable effort to use the track at all times and may not deliberately leave the track without a justifiable reason. Drivers will be judged to have left the track if no part of the car remains in contact with it and, for the avoidance of doubt, any white lines defining the track edges are considered to be part of the track, but the kerbs are not. Should a car leave the track, the driver may rejoin. However, this may only be done when it is safe to do so and without gaining any lasting advantage. The absolute discretion of the race director, a driver may be given the opportunity to give back the whole of any advantage he gained by leaving the track. Now, as you said, Karun, in terms of the Verstappen-Raikkonen pass, it is absolutely clear-cut, isn't it? 100% all four wheels off the track. You could see the front wheels from the Verstappen on board. The back wheels were behind the white line from the Raikkonen rearward-facing camera. There's a good mix that F1 put out on their YouTube channel. So if anyone wants to have a look at that to maybe accompany this discussion, that's a a good place to look because you see all the angles. So it's very, very difficult, isn't it? Because when something like this gets looked at by the stewards, they kind of have to make the decision based on its merits. And I think... If you look at it completely locally, just that incident, 100% right. And I think if they had not taken the action, chances are people would have been complaining about it anyway. Well, why wasn't it one? So that, to me, says that this isn't about should Verstappen have been penalised or not penalised. It's about the whole wider picture. Because the stewards, effectively, damned if they do, damned if they don't on that one. And I think the whole thing needs to be looked at. Well, I think but they made their bed by not penalising people earlier in the weekend. I, th- I think the stewards have made their bed this weekend, you know, starting in FP3. Lewis did a purple sector three in free practice three, uh, the final sector, by running straight off the track at turn 19 into the runoff area and rejoining. Um, and after that, uh, you know, I, I between FP3 and qualifying, I had a quick chat with Mika Salo and said, what's the story there? You know, what, what are you going to do when it comes to qualifying? Obviously, it doesn't matter free practice. And he said, well, we're going to turn a blind eye. Now, as a driver, when you're going around the track, how can you um, read the minds of the stewards? And how can you do a whole Grand Prix thinking, oh, you know what? At this corner, they're not going to turn a blind eye. So I need to think about where to overtake or where to not. And Max isn't an idiot. Let's be very clear. Max is an extremely intelligent kid. Um, I, I think he's actually, you know, from a, he's a very intellectual driver. If you look at what happened a few laps before this whole thing with Kimi, with when he was trying to pass Bottas, he ran Bottas off the track at um, the the slow left at uh, fourteen, I think it is, or fifteen, the slow left hander before the the long run. But he backed out of it and he let Valtteri. Actually, it was turn twelve, I think. Yeah, it's turn twelve. It was, turn 12, it was 12, a slower right hander, wasn't it? He backed out of it, 
and let Valtteri rejoin in front. And then Valtteri ran wide the next corner anyway, so he repassed him. But, you know, Max would not um, do that move on Kimi over the white line unless he thought he was going to legitimately get away with it. And I think the stewards, with with the way they have it or their lack of penalties through the weekend, have given him cause to legitimately think he would get away with it. And I think, that you know, they, they've... This whole thing, and I fully agree with you, there's a much bigger story here, which is these uh, these tarmac runoff areas and the way the curbs are designed and all this nonsense, you know. The cur- the curbs should just be the, the width of a curb, which is half the width of a race car or whatever it is. And beyond that should be grass or gravel, and we would not be sitting here having these discussions. You could, of course, argue that the whole question is about the amount you gain. So in that case, that's a very extreme piece of abuse of track limits, isn't it? Because in passing another driver, he was all four four wheels off. So it's 100% direct. It's not an indirect benefit. Now, there are other cases. You mentioned a few cases, but also Vettel had a couple. The first corner, he was all four wheels off after kind of completing his, his move for the lead on the inside. And... Less talked about actually was when he ran wide at turn 19 on that inlap, uh, not the inlap, while Hamilton was making his pit stop, which was Vettel's third lap of that stint. And it was in fact the the extra speed Vettel found on that lap that put Mercedes a little bit in trouble because I think that was three or four tenths maybe quicker than his previous fastest lap. So there's kind of slightly less tangible benefits there. So you, you know, you kind of have perhaps. A bit of tyre protection is the least obvious one that you get from opening out the corner, running out wide a bit more. Then you have maybe a small time benefit. And another one, then you have the really extreme case of the car off the track driving effectively a different circuit to make the move. So could you argue that was such an extreme case? There was no way they could turn a blind eye to it. I think the most extreme case is the turn 19 one because these guys, to gain an advantage, they're driving you know, beyond the curb. They're driving in the runoff area, which is a joke. Uh, you know, it's not even close to the corner radius. At least in Max's case, he's on the curb. Okay, the curb was twice as wide as it normally is, which is it's a different story. But I, I, th- I think that, you know, you if you're going to use the regulation that you just quoted, and if you are going to penalize people, you can't, pick and choose who you're going to do it to. You either have to do it across the board to everybody or you go, uh, you know what, we're just going to let it slip. But you can't do the latter because then where do you draw the line? They've got themselves into a whole mess here by, I think, not penalizing people for getting an advantage in qualifying to start with and then, you know, earlier in the Grand Prix. So, Lawrence, what do you reckon would have happened had that been let go? Do you think that people would have accepted that? Or would you have had the other side of the argument of saying, well, why was that pass allowed to stand? I think given the nature of the move and the extent to what it actually meant, it was for the final podium, I think people would have let it go. I think when you looked at the rest of the weekend, and as Curran said, no one else got penalised. So I think it would just been, oh, well, that's what the rule has been all the way through the weekend. So, you know, we'll stick with that. It was interesting. Kimmy said, well, I don't even know what Max did when he was asked about it so if Kimmy didn't really have an idea then you'd guess most people I think Kimmy would have been delighted because he would have missed the press conference I think he would have been happy to finish fourth and go home quickly you know uh, um, yeah is but also Kimmy nearly messed it up completely didn't he because once Max got ahead of him it's like his chin drop and he just sort of trundled across the line and actually he finished 4.1 seconds behind Max you know, because he crawled across the line in the last corner. And with Max's penalty, he only beat him by nine-tenths of a second. So Kimi nearly, nearly messed the whole thing up for himself. It seems the whole problem with track limits has been going on for a very long time. These are very high-quality drivers in Formula 1. They're capable of not of not using bits of the track they're not meant to be using. You give them any leeway, they will take it, because that's what their job is to do do you remember i forget which year it was when nigel mansell was the driver steward at the belgian grand prix I can't, 2011 2011 so you'd have been in the driver's the briefing, briefing. There. Yep. remember there was all the stuff about the first corner and everyone said oh no you can't say they have to stay on the track at the first corner uh, you should probably pick up the story because you were there but mansell pushed that and then from memory sure enough having had some very messy starts there suddenly all of these very high quality drivers were able to stay on the track you know, that story's come up because Mansell brings it up quite often as well. 
But I, he would never bring things up to her. But, but, but you I, know, I, he, he was right in that case, I, wasn't of he? Of course he was right in that case. But I, I think, you know, you're, since 2011 Spa, there have been a lot of races and, and a whole other load of debates that we've had about this kind of stuff. And what is a little bit disappointing is that we can all, probably 90% of the paddock, I think, can agree on what the solution is, which is just put a deterrent down, put real grass and real gravel, and nobody will go there. And I'm sorry, if you have five and a half meters of real grass or gravel and then 10 kilometers of tarmac asphalt after that, I don't see what the problem is. You know, it'll be fine. Um, circuits or, or, or people, you know, doing this sort of stuff often say, well, it has to suit different categories of racing. Well, I go, I race in sports cars and, you know, it's the same discussions at Spa. Non-stop we discuss about track limits in that championship. So what what works for the goose works for the gander in this case. And then the next discussion comes, oh, well, what about the bikes? The bikes are not happy. Well, as far as I understand, speaking to people from the, the bike side of things, is that while I don't think they're overly keen on the big gravel runoffs because of potential for spinal injuries, I think it, the compromise of having a certain amount of, of, as I say, a natural deterrent, grass or gravel, followed by X amount of tarmac, I don't think is a bad compromise from their standpoint either. I think they, they'll be pretty content with that. So, But what I don't get is how we've managed to find a pretty good solution at some circuits, but not at others. I think like the last sector in Mexico, which, you know, is a relatively modern uh, section that's been built. They've got the big curbs there. Nobody can cheat. Nobody can cut. If you go on the curbs, the belly of the car sits on the deck and you can't gain an advantage. So if we can we can find a solution there. And actually, even Austria, I think, turn one, you know, you got the yellow curb. And clearly, by going over it, you lose time. You know... Some places were able to find a solution. Yeah, we go to places like Silverstone or here uh, or Hockenheim and we don't have a solution. It's, the whole thing's just a bit confusing, really. Well, the places where it really does hit home are the newer circuits, such as Circuit of the Americas. Remember, India was terrible for it. There are yeah. all sorts of problems there. These more modern circuits. And if you look at look at the Circuit of the Americas, that piece of track that Verstappen drove over it was baffling there was nothing there that made it a bit of track you wouldn't want to use because I think you're right you can talk about whether track limit violations should be policed emphatically and more consistently how you do it how much you allow etc etc but if it's the track itself fundamentally that creates the penalty drivers won't use it will they don't no exactly and but the thing is I sp- the the difficulty is you mentioned obviously the yellow curbs are in some places, but they might a lot, a lot of drivers are moaning about the yellow curbs that they don't like them. Drivers moaning. Drivers will moan anyway. Dri- drivers, you know, w- there are certain drivers. Certain drivers will moan anyway. But if you would, ha- would you like to name them? Well, no. But if you had real grass or gravel down, uh, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, Lawrence was like. I think Spa has been ruined. You know, Spa used to be one of my favorite circuits in the world. Dare I say it, it isn't anymore because it's been ruined, I think, by all this tarmac um, they've put down in the runoff areas. You know, when when you used to come through Eau Rouge with just gravel on the edge of it, okay, in the dry it's easy flat, but in the wet it was such a challenge to get through there without having the left rear wheel in the gravel. And same at Pujan, used to be so, so satisfying to come through Puhan carrying all the speed without dropping a wheel in the gravel because you had literally track, white line, and gravel. And you come out of it and you go, whoa, that was good. Uh, and that feeling's gone now because, you know, you know you got a chance to just run wide and what's the worst that could happen? Oh, they'll give you a five-second penalty. Okay, well, it's it's a different challenge. You're, 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 getting, satis- you're getting satisfaction from not being penalized by the stewards rather than satisfaction by actually driving there on the, the ragged edge of the grip level available to you and getting away with it. But aren't the FIA in a difficult position now? Because if they start putting back in gravel traps or Armco closer to the corners and then there's a big accident or something happens, they're just going to look really bad, aren't they? Because they've gone backwards on you know their push for safety. No, I, I, dis- I completely disagree because I think they, they, they have a... Of course, safety is important. But I think they also have a responsibility to safeguard the interests of the sport. 
And what the way that whole thing unfolded at the last lap there, I don't think there's one person who'll say it was good for the sport, uh, especially in a key market like America. And I think there's a there's a fine balance. Nobody wants to see drivers get hurt or get killed. Of course not. But you have to make the sport challenging. And, you know, I, I think we're, we're losing sight of that in some ways if we're, if we're worried about putting a bit of grass and gravel down. These are meant to be the best drivers in the world. And even sports cars or, or GT racing, whatever, you know, you're meant to have drivers who are able to at least stay within the track limits and not... I'm not saying put Armco down, um, although in some cases I think it would help. But I'm not saying you need to put barriers. Move the, and also it's expensive. You know, I I work with the circuit design company now. We're working on a couple of different projects um, around the world, so I I know how expensive it is building in FIA grade safety barriers and catch fencing and all that kind of stuff. And you can't expect, um, as Ed said, it's a lot of the modern circuits who have made recent investments. You can't expect them to reinvest in moving all of that. But surely being able to put a bit of soil and a bit of grass down, that's perhaps a more justifiable expenditure. Well, then I guess the solution is just enforce track limits everywhere, like so that you just have it consistently across the board. You can't have some where you are going to allow it and some place where you aren't. That seems like the cheapest and easiest solution. Yeah, it would be. But of course, that does create its own problems, doesn't it? Because you could make a small error and exceed track limits it, it's quite a it's quite a precise thing there's yeah. a difference between deliberately doing it between accidentally doing it so it it does so you're absolutely right that's that's the logical solution within the constraints that Karim was just mentioning but again this kind of what what you said has pointed to exactly what the root of the problem is that that the circuit design has neglected this over quite a quite a period of years when you when you come into this thing of enforcing track limits which you you know as you say is is a simpler thing in many cases, I think it, it's it's not so simple uh, because it's very black and white. You know, if you are going to enforce it as a black and white rule, it's black and white. Yeah, fine. But like, you remember that move Grosjean did at Turn Four in Budapest a few years oh, ago around the outside, and all of us watching went, "Whoa, what an amazing move!" It, and it was, and then it's like, "Oh, he's been penalized for track limits because his wheel was three inches off." And it's like, you know, that's the kind of stuff I think. You, they're right legally to have penalised him, but you know it's the kind of stuff that I, I, I think shouldn't happen. You know, I, I think if you had real grass there, real gravel, he would have had to put two wheels on the grass to make the move. And if he'd still pulled it off, that would have been absolutely incredible, um, and, and there would have been no debate about it. And I, I still believe that they need to just find a natural deterrent on the side of the circuit rather than relying on people's judgment. And to be honest, you're relying on human judgment, aren't you? If the three of us sat in the steward's room, we'll constantly have three different answers for things. The thing I don't understand is why this hasn't really been addressed because this problem's been around for a while. I was looking back, I posted on Twitter earlier an article I ran on autosport.com that I wrote in 2013 talking about it. And I was far from the first person to talk about it. And in that feature, I'd spoken to Clive Bowen from Apex Circuit Design. And he talked about the grass strip idea and I threw a few other ideas that people have suggested into the mix. So there are options and possibilities that can do it. But it seems this keeps coming round and round and round. Now, what I'd be interested to know is what has seriously been looked at for this. Obviously, you're, Karim, sort of an FIA representative, aren't you? You're on the Drivers' Commission. So is this something that ever comes up? Is this something that's being seriously looked at? Because it's one thing if it's being completely neglected and it's just so well, it's just the way it is in which case this situation will continue to happen. It's another if the FI's got it on the agenda and they can't quite work out a path that so, that meets all those demands you're talking about in terms of you can't just reinvent all the circuits just like that and demand investment. You can't necessarily have a hard and fast penalty rule because of all these different factors. You have the safety things to, to encounter. So is it just a thing where the, the, the Venn diagram, the bit in the middle where it's absolutely right, it's so narrow, it's going to take a long time to get there, or is it just being ignored? I think it's one of those situations where they've they've committed to this path and they've gone down this path of tarmac runoffs. Clearly, X amount of research has been done by the Safety Commission and the Circuits Commission and they've decided that this is the path they're going to go down. And it's got so much momentum behind it. Now, I don't know the origins of where that, where, you know, that thought process began and where the solutions came up and 
but for whatever reason, it seems like they've they've committed to this path. And to almost get this direction changed is proving to be harder than it should be, really. Uh, as you say, now it's been... I, I would have said even as far back as 2009, 10, we were already looking at more and more of these tarmac runoffs coming down. I think Bahrain was one of the early ones. You can even look back at the famous uh, Villeneuve-Arnoux battle as a as a bit of track limit violation. That's a slightly flippant Yeah, but point, they all but... got away with it, didn't they? <laughs> that was brilliant, though, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I think... So we, we, we can probably argue that it's been a decade, let's say, of this stuff. You know, then they went to Fuji... And there's more and more tarmac being put down at Fuji in 2007, if you think. So it's been going on for a while. Um, I'm interested to see what the future holds. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm interested to see if... And Charlie's very much a part of this process. You know, he's very much uh, involved with the circuits and he has to sign off the circuits before they're safe to go racing. And, you know, so uh, I'm very interested to see if he's... He and the rest of the the FIA are willing to reevaluate what's been going on and to, to come up with a different solution. I don't know what whether that will be the case in all honesty. Is it something that needs to happen from the top? Like Jean Todd needs to just come out and make a decision just either way on what, what needs to be done because it's, it's all well and good maybe Charlie saying yeah I think we should do this or that or Liberty's coming in and saying or Team Boss is saying it but someone actually needs to make a decision right at the top. To uh, Li- Liberty and the teams have no say in this. They, they, there's no, nothing they can do about it because circuits have to host multiple championships and multiple events beyond F1. There's, there is a world outside of F1. Um, so, yeah, but I think you're right. I agree. It, you know, if somebody like Todd or somebody high up in the FA decides to take a stand, yeah, I think that could be a, a good solution. I think you're absolutely right. The fact is that if you have an argument where it's just clear-cut one way or the other, then you can say, well, actually, all would have been well if if Verstappen hadn't been penalised. But actually, it wouldn't quite have been because the problem's still there. So whichever way you go, it's bad, isn't it? And that, that tells you how stupid the situation has become. And I think it's also ruined us having this podcast and and equally people all around the world talking about the brilliance of Verstappen yet again. Well, it was an amazing last lap move for a podium position after starting... What was he, 16th on the grid, I think, in the end? Yeah. No, that's just fantastic. And, and the fact that he came through, and actually at one point when he was fourth, before they all started slowing each other down and fighting, he was only 12 seconds behind Hamilton. And let's keep in mind, okay, Lewis is managing his pace, managing his tires, blah, blah, blah. But he's come from the back of the grid to effectively be challenging the Ferraris and to be not a million miles behind Hamilton having come through the pack. And, and most amazingly is he didn't even make up those positions off the line either because I think he was pretty much where he was in the first corner. He was still by the two southers, wasn't he? So that was a fantastic drive. Yeah, you were cheering for your favourite team at that point, weren't you, when he was... Uh, of course, well, Sauber is a very well-appointed team as we as we learned this weekend. Yeah, in fact, Sauber hosting a very important guest, Bill Clinton. I spotted having lunch in there with a few Secret Service men outside. So, uh, yeah, they were, they were in uh, high demand, clearly, this weekend. Well, unless anyone's got anything to add on track limits, I think we've uh, we've talked around that uh, ad nauseum and basically sent a message to whoever it is. Well, it's the FIA ultimately, isn't it? So, Jean Todt, come on, undertake to get this sorted out. Find out what needs to be done. Great working groups, whatever. Get Karine Chandok involved. I'm sure we'll be happy to. Uh, happy I to... volunteered. Well, there we go. I did. I did volunteer last year. Yeah. Well, now now it's your problem. You have said publicly on this Autosport podcast that you will solve the track limits problem. So if we're talking about this in a few years, we'll know exactly who to blame this time. There was actually a race going on as well. Lewis Hamilton won with, with relative ease. I imagine that everyone else was probably of a similar mindset to I was when Vettel got the track position at the start because we've seen this pattern where... Sometimes Ferrari has had the the advantage on race pace, and once they get track position, you think actually they should be able to win this. But that that wasn't remotely how it panned out, and that certainly surprised me. Yeah, absolutely right. I think um, we've seen it many times this year where the Mercedes has struggled in the dirty air. You know, once once another car's gone in front, they've actually struggled to to follow. And I thought, yeah, there's a there's a real chance here. Um, but I think Lewis has been just on stellar form all weekend. He, you know, I didn't realize it's only the second time all season he's topped the times in FP3 
Um, but all through Friday and, and Saturday, he's been just utterly dominant, really, is the word. And once again, I think it underlines that he's justified every million that he's paid by Mercedes. Because if you look at the World Championship, or if you look at particularly the second half of the season, you know, if if they didn't have Lewis as their number one, they would not win this World Championship. They would not be constructed as World Champions today. They They wouldn't be in this dominant position in the World Championship. And, you know, for Bottas... This this weekend has yet again underlined that, you know, A, he's up against the best driver in his generation, but B, he's got to raise his game. You know, the the average qualifying delta second half of the year, I think, is half a second now. And if you contrast, I think somebody, I think it was 0.56, something like that, if, it, if my memory is correct. Um, and first half of the year, he did a good job. He was only, I think it was 0.18 or 0.20 something. So, you know, it's nearly three times the time deficit second half of the year. And since the summer break, Lewis has just been amazing. And this weekend, yet again. Yeah, Lewis has been on another level, I think, since the summer break. Um, but it also helps Circuit of America because he's won, what, five out of six times now there. And he described it on Sunday as his favourite circuit. So it just, it just shows you, you know, confidence and also momentum, how important that is to Lewis. It's also a, a driver's circuit, isn't it, insofar as there's a lot of different challenges there. So it, it tests the, the full skill set of the drivers, doesn't it? So perhaps it's no coincidence that this is such a Lewis Hamilton circuit. I mean, Yukarun described him as the, the best driver's generation, something like that, I think, a minute ago. I think he is. I, I think, he is. I think um, you know, he, especially when it comes to qualifying, you know, he's broken all the records. Um, I, I think he's he's... On a Saturday afternoon, he is unquestionably the best driver of this generation. On a Sunday, you could debate and argue that you got Alonso in the mix and and Vettel as well. Um, But, you know, in modern Grand Prix racing, we all know how important qualifying is. And I think just based on that, it's hard to not put Lewis Hamilton as uh, the number one driver on the grid today. The interesting thing was, Hamilton said after the race that when he was sat behind Vettel, initially he thought, okay, this is going to be the normal thing, I'll have to drop back a little bit, bide my time, see if I can do something with the pit stops, maybe later in the stint or whatever. But then he said that he saw Vettel pushing too hard in certain parts of the track. Obviously, it's quite demanding on tyres here. He said, I could see he was going to overheat his tyres. It's Basically, he was sat there saying, no, you're doing it wrong. I can attack you here. And that, I think, is something that people overlook a little bit with Hamilton he's prodigiously fast but he's got a great racing brain and I think he just keeps getting better and better and you almost feel like the ease with which he executed that pass somewhat surprising Vettel I think at that stage because he didn't defend properly it's all well and good Vettel saying well I didn't think we had the car to win today but doesn't he make it easy for him but I think Hamilton just made it look easy with how in control he was he thought no I've got this it's one thing to do that when you're in the lead but another thing when you're behind and actually have to get get the job done but that's something that um, people at Mercedes said to me is that since the summer break, he's got a, a very sort of he's arrived with a very cerebral attitude to going racing. Apparently, he's really been focusing on how he um, dials the car in on his prep laps, making sure that every corner of the car, every tire, every brake um, brake disc is you know all that is in the right temperature window, not for turn one, but making sure he's got grip in sector three and they say he's really thinking about it and I think on Sunday especially the wind had turned 180 degrees and you can't underestimate that you know when you're driving around the wind changes direction whether you're at a a flat Snetterton or here at Kota the wind makes a huge difference to um, the to any car and but especially the 2017 F1 cars which are very aero sensitive and I think Mark Webber made this point, actually. He said a few years ago when he was with Red Bull and the Red Bulls were 1-2, so it must have been 2012. And he said Lewis was, and Jensen were behind, so it must have been, yeah, it must have been 2012. He said he could not believe how good Lewis was at following through the S's. He was able to use a slightly different line and, and use different parts of the track to get the wind flowing onto his car and make sure he carried good speed through sector one, which allowed him to have DRS down the back straight. And Mark made that point. He said, you watch, with the wind the direction that it is now, it doesn't matter if Lewis is behind. He is so, so good in that first sector with, with the tricky wind conditions. And I think that was key. 
you know, he, he carried such good speed through sector one. It allowed him to get close to Seb at turn 11 at the top top of the back straight and then get it done at the end of the straight. And I think, as you said, Ed, you know, you're spot on. That racing brain, being able to position the car and think, not for that corner, but to think six corners ahead is um, is just mighty impressive. And it's also a big blow for Ferrari in many ways because you can make varying strengths of case that in the previous three races when they had all sorts of disasters, mechanical problems, the shunts in Singapore, you could argue that Vettel could slash should have won all three of those races. Now, it's one thing when things go wrong to say, well, we had the pace, we could have beaten them. But here, they were beaten all ends up. Ferrari was demolished by the combination of Hamilton Hamilton and Mercedes, which I think is going to be very, very hard to take for, for Ferrari. I think they've written off the season now, haven't they? I think they, you know, there's no point in them bringing updates and doing anything. You know, the championships are gone. They might, I think they, they're just going to focus on, on next year, but, uh, and hope that their 2018 car allows them to be, you know, they, they've stepped it up since last year. Clearly not enough. Um, I think what is worrying is that Mercedes recognize that their 2017 car has fundamentally got a few design quirks, shall we say, that's made it tricky to set up and tricky to drive. They will address that in 2018. They're not going to have these inconsistencies that they've had this year, or at least they plan not to. So Ferrari, you know, are going to have to again do an equal amount of improvement probably over the winter. So... Yeah, but as you said, ten you know got smashed ten seconds over the weekend, and Lewis is probably cruising for the the last fifteen laps. Uh, that's a that's very worrying, and and the fact that Red Bull have come back at them. If if Max had qualified fifth on the grid, he'd be he would have finished second in the race, unquestionably. If he didn't have the penalty, he would have finished second in this race, and and Daniel arguably, you know, would have had the pace to to be in that mix as well. I think. Ferrari in Singapore probably thought that that was a race they should have won, but I think they were genuinely surprised that they could have won it in Malaysia and Japan. I agree that they they should and could have won it in those two races, but I think they were surprised there. So I don't think we should be too surprised that they weren't the the better team here at, at, at Kota. Uh, they did bring a few new bits. I think only Vettel had a new package. I think he had a new diffuser and a new floor. Um, so it's not like they haven't they haven't given up. But also, you might also point to the fact that maybe those new bits didn't work as well. And have they lost out in the development race this year? I think they were negligible the bits that they brought. You know, you're not talking a, you're not talking ten points of downforce here. You're talking negligible bits, and uh, from what I understand, some of it is also to give them direction for 2018. Um, a lot of the teams are doing that now. A lot of the teams are are bringing bits to to understand different aero maps and to just do a bit of mapping work. And 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 if it works, they keep in the car, but they just to under get some direction for 2018. So. You know, they didn't bring a whole heap of of updates that you that you suddenly saw them get transformed, like we saw the Red Bull, for example, in Singapore. You know, with the barge boards and things like that. So, yeah, I would debate that today the Red Bull is the second best team on a Sunday, in particular, not on a Saturday, but certainly on a Sunday. I would actually say that even since Spa, you'd have to say the Red Bull. You know, they had penalties there. Max obviously dropped out but Daniel was coming through you know you'd have to say on a Sunday they've been pretty handy we also need to talk about Brendan Hartley Grand Prix debut 13th he finished having been thrown at the deep end at, at Toro Rosso I think I calculated something like just over 2,000 days since he last raced a single seater which is when he briefly uh, briefly turned up in uh, in GP2 in in 2012 early in the year he's been confirmed for the Mexican Grand Prix Pierre Gasly will come back in Daniel Kvyat's one-off return has been confirmed as a, a one-off return. And I have to say, Kvyat did actually do a very, very good job. Strong in qualifying, decent in the race, albeit with the caveat that there was no Carlos Sainz in the other car to, to rate him against. So what do we make of Brendan Hartley's performance? I thought it was respectable. I think uh, given the fact that, as you say, he got the call to come and do this weekend without ever driving uh, you know, the, the Torosso or let alone a single-seater since 2012... Um, it's a very tall order. I think you can't underestimate that. But, uh, and I think also, you know, he arrived, he did qualifying, 
I think if, with every set of tyres and every run that he did on low fuel, he found huge chunks of lap time. It was interesting. I was watching him uh, in FP3 down at 14.15, and you could see that he wasn't quite at that point getting the same commitment on the side, because obviously you watch them doing their earlier work in the session. And then when people start coming through, going into 15, which is the slow left-hander with the, it's not a straight arrival so it's a, it's a tricky corner and you see the commitment like you watch Alonso then you think oh surely he's broke too like oh no loads of loads of grip maximum attack Hartley didn't quite have that but you could see him building up yeah I think so I, I I'm interested to see how he gets on in Mexico I think now the uh you know obviously I know him very well we were teammates at Le Mans um so I spent a bit of time with him over the weekend and he was saying how he's just it's just coming to him he's getting more comfortable with it I mean Friday morning was a write-off for the weather and you know, just it was difficult for him. You know, to qualify within eight tenths of Kvyat was pretty acceptable, respectable. Um, Qualifying is always going to be the weakest area, really. Isn't exactly. It? Um, you know, I even got a compliment out of Helmut Marco for him, which was uh, quite a rarity. Um, and actually, I went to him. I said to him, I said, Brennan, you know, Helmut actually has said that you've been doing a very good job. And he said, Oh, did he? He didn't tell me that. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> which is quite funny. But um, I, I think their view is that they know Kvyat. They they know what he's capable of. He's had plenty of opportunities to make a career um, in amongst the, the Red Bull family, shall we say, between two teams. I think their view is that he's sort of plateaued. He You know, he's he, he's a finished product. He is what he is. I think they'd like to see what Hartley's potential is. You know, has he got the potential to, to be a Carlos Sainz, uh, which is really their benchmark as far as Toro Rosso is concerned. Um, what, where it's going to be very tricky for the team now with Hartley-Gasly is what's their baseline? What's their reference? Re- really, where are they? You know, what, what What's their potential in the car with two rookies? So I think that could be a little bit tricky to judge for the next three races. Hopefully with a bit of mileage over the winter. Um, and if they both do end up with a drive, I think Gasly's pretty much confirmed for next year. Um, you know, will will be interesting to see over the winter what happens, especially but since they're going to have an engine that no one else has. So really, where is their baseline? I think um, Franz Toss had a decision to make, didn't he? It was either push on and try and get a good position in the constructors' championship this year, or just try and work out who their driver lineup is going to be next year. And given it's all going to be changed with Honda anyway, I guess trying to at least get some sort of stability this year into next year where you can might be might be a strong point, even if you're going to sacrifice a place in the constructors' championship. But it's one of those amazing stories, really, isn't it? I mean, it oh, must, yeah. It must resonate with you, Karun. You know, yep. Formula One hopeful, former Red Bull protégé, all washed up, finds some refuge in sports cars and comes back into Formula One. Does it give you hope, given that you've trodden that same path, albeit without the Le Mans wins and the World Endurance well, title? Well, I, um, I, uh, I think we, 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 we think about maybe we should form a club of former Red Bull drivers making a comeback. Sadly, I think DC and Mark will be ahead of me in that queue, so... Um, yeah, I was already in GP2 with Boemi. Uh, at the time, Brendan was in uh, Formula 3 with uh, Al Gossari, and we had Daniel and Jean-Éric Verne doing Formula Renault. Um, and then you have people like Robert Wickens doing Formula 2, and uh, Scott Spe- actually Scott Speed was in, F- was in GP2 with me as well at the time. So, you know, there's, there was a... A few of us around, but I think also there was a. It just shows how the Red Bull programs changed. And I t- I talked to Helmut about this over the weekend. When you know, I remember when we had the program between two thousand five and and nine, uh, when all of us were sort of dipping in and out of it in, in various levels. You know, every time you went to Fuchsel in Austria, there was just this production line of drivers, and we'd all be off training. And you know, there's so everywhere you look, there was another Red Bull driver. That doesn't happen anymore. That that isn't the case. And I think. It's because at the time, two things. A, the main team wasn't yet established. You know, they hadn't yet won their first race, really, at that point. Um, and they were still trying to find their big, big young talent. You know, they had Mark in one car. They had DC. Then DC went and Seb came along. Um, Toro Rosso were very much in existence to find that next generation of talent. If you look at the start of this year, they had five drivers who were already young enough, you know, Daniel, Max, Gasly, uh, and obviously Carlos and, and Daniel. You had five drivers who you could debate uh, young enough to have another 10, 15 years in F1. So they didn't really need the big production line 
But I wonder now, sitting here today, if helmets sort of thought, ooh, hang on a second, recent experience has told me I need to have two or three drivers in the wings here. You know, it's almost like he needs one driver in the wings for Red Bull Racing and another one in the wings for Toroso. So just having one Gasly between the two isn't maybe enough. Well, it does seem a fairly dramatic swing to put a driver like Hartley in there. I mean, setting aside the fact he'd been part of the Red Bull program. Did you expect, did you expect him to be there? Because I thought Bohemi would get the nod, given the fact that he yeah, test, yeah, did uh, the two-day tyre test with Red Bull, I think, earlier this year. Yeah, so he's I mean, driven the 2017 car with the Pirelli tyres. Yeah, Hartley was a surprise. I mean, there's, there's no no two ways about it. And it, it seemed a, an unusual choice. I mean, there's two ways you can look at it. I tend to be quite pragmatic on that. And I thought that, well, if you're in that position and you want the best one-off option, then you do something really predictable and you throw someone like Jolly on Palmer in there for which for a one-off would have been your your strongest point points here but no Hartley was not was not an obvious choice the, I guess the only time we've seen something like this before was when Toro Rosso signed Sebastian Bourdais from uh, from Champ Car for 2008 and he did 2008 the first half of 2009 because obviously they'd lost faith with the, the drivers they did have they didn't feel the ones lower down the the the, the pecking order were, were worth putting into it I presume you were one of them at that time um, around, yeah, around, but, around, around yeah, that period. I just joined the program actually. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Because there were a lot of drivers around at that stage. As you say, there were there were sometimes there were some people flitting in and out of the program. It got it got quite manic at, at, at times. But they've ended up back in this situation where they've got a thin down program, and then they're still having to look for alternatives because they don't have the kind of cast on shots. Do you think they've just got better at working out who are the who are the Daniel Ricardos and worth pursuing? And no, they've invested in these guys over the years, and I think because they've got more of the top-line finished products, you know, think about it. It's just money, isn't it? You know, when you've got to pay for 15, 18 drivers doing junior formula, average it out between all the costs of the GP2, GP3, you know, let's say on average 700000 each, Um you know, you're straight away looking at another 11 million euros. It's not a small sum of money um, to be investing. So I think they, they've just sort of thought, well, let's pick and choose. But I think what's made it clear to them is now they need to have at least two drivers in that sort of GP2, or Formula 2, Super Formula level. They need to have two drivers who can potentially step in for the Grand Prix weekend. So briefly coming back to Toro Rosso for next year, Lawrence, what do you expect to happen? Obviously, you speak to the team quite a lot. Are we looking at a Gasly-Hartley pairing, do you feel? I think Gasly's almost certain to be in one of the seats. I think they would ideally like Hartley to be in there, but they've still got that Kvyat fallback if, they don't, if they're not convinced by Hartley in these remaining few races. Uh, but the good news is that Brendan Hartley will get another chance to, to impress and stake his claim for a 2018 seat in the Mexican Grand Prix this weekend. That's going to be a really interesting race. Very different circuit, very different atmospheric conditions, very very low levels of downforce. Even though it's not a conventional low level, low downforce track because of the obviously the altitude there means you, you don't get so much downforce for your for your wing as it were. So it's going to be interesting to see how things go on there and whether Lewis Hamilton can can clinch the championship. What do you reckon, Lawrence? I think Lewis is going to clinch the championship in Mexico. It'd be a real shock if it actually ends up going to Brazil. I'm not sure what the points exactly what the points but he just needs to finish fifth so yeah he will be world champion in mexico i think there's very little doubt in that yeah and even if he doesn't he'll end it in brazil it's 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 been oh just delaying the inevitable now from between this week and and next week really so um and deservedly you know i I think you wrote a column a few weeks ago i seem to remember where you you argued this might be his best ever championship win um and i hadn't actually sort of thought of that and, and uh, I must say that I, I actually agree because he hasn't made any mistakes okay he's had a couple of wobbly weekends arguably Russia slightly underperformed um, Monaco as well maybe I'll qualify by Bottas and, and you know didn't really maximize the best out of the car but there's no there's, he still scored points there's been no mistakes whereas I think Seb made a mistake in Singapore and I think he made a mistake in Baku so, uh, I think you're right, you know. Um, it would be his best ever championship. It's closer than he's made it look. He's actually made it look like a walkover. And, and it wasn't, which I guess is what you expect to see from the, the great drivers, isn't it? They make they make things look easier maybe than, maybe than they actually are. But it's, it's going to be fascinating to see. 
Lewis won't really be focused in any way on the championship. He'll want to go to Mexico to to get yet another win and uh, and rub rub Ferrari's noses in the uh, in, in the dirt after the, the battles they've had this year. So you can follow all of our coverage on Autosport.com of that weekend, both the news and the normal uh, the normal features and uh, and in depth columns on it. Autosport magazine out Thursday, which will have I'd normally say Ben Anderson's Grand Prix reports uh, and driver ratings in it, but it's actually my attempt this week, so you you get a much 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 lower standard out of that. So thanks very much for joining us, and thanks to Lawrence and to Karin Chandok for offering their insight. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just two fifty. dollars Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.